0: Welcome. Glad y'all are here this morning. If you're here for the first time, um, I hope you'll feel welcome. I hope that someone will introduce themselves to you. Um, I hope that maybe that's happened already. If it doesn't happen, I want to encourage those of you who are normally with us on Sunday mornings to pay attention to who's around you. You may have someone here for the first time. I I recognize some faces that are new, and uh, we really want you to feel welcome. The hard part is we are like a family. And sometimes when family is together, we can spend a lot of times catching up with one another and that can be at the expense of someone who's here for the first time. So we really don't want that to happen. So we want to work hard at, at letting you know that you are welcome this morning. Uh, we treasure your uh, sharing your morning with us and pray that you'll be um, equipped this morning for worship. I'm going to begin with prayer and I'm going to pray for it. Typically we pray... Uh, on Sunday mornings for a local church, but this morning we're going to pray for a local ministry, uh, Granville Christian School, and uh, we're going to lift up a few specifics regarding uh, this Christian school that's here in town. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the opportunity to open your word this morning and to have a meal and to be fed and nourished and equipped. I, uh, I want to pray for those that are with us for the first time. I pray that uh, even if it's not something that they may be accustomed to, that you'll use it. And even if this is our only opportunity to share the table and the, the a meal together of your word, I pray that they would know that we celebrate the local ministries and that we beg for your glory in and through them and that we want to guard ourselves from ever being party to or fostering a spirit of competition between churches or between ministries Ultimately, we want your name to be enjoyed. We want your um, kingdom to be advanced. And uh, that's why we want to lift up these local ministries. Uh, This morning, we want to lift up Greenville Christian School. Uh, I'm just thankful for many years of service to this community and service in many ways to the local Christians who are partnering with Greenville Christian School to raise their children in faith matters, school matters, Math English everything um, I just pray for uh, this this local ministry pray for the leadership for Steve uh, for uh, a board that's making decisions and Lord I pray that you would liberate them from um, feeling like they have to foster community I just can't imagine the burden that they feel for um, developing uh, a sense of community but I Lord, I pray that that would not, not be ever be at the expense of the church. I pray that they would never see themselves as anyone's church. I pray that those that are sending their children there would never view Greenville Christian School as their church life and never view Steve as their pastor or their, their teachers as pastors to their children. Lord, I pray that, that this ministry would be a compliment to the local churches. Lord, I pray for families that are putting their faith in Christian education, Lord, that you would liberate them from that somehow, that you would guide the leadership of this local ministry and how to go about that and how to navigate those, those delicate conversations and difficult decisions uh, to where they can push families toward local bodies, where they can be equipped, where they can um, share their gifting and receive others' gifting, um, Lord, um, what a a complicated ministry for them. I just pray that I just want to lift, we want to lift them up this morning. Pray that you would give them a wisdom that's beyond them and how to navigate those difficult waters. Lord, we do pray with them, as Steve shared with me this week, uh, a burden for leadership development. I pray that you would give them some specific insight into how to raise up uh, leaders of uh, families and ministries and businesses and tomorrow's leaders. I pray that you would give them um, insights in how to go about that, and that they would walk faithfully in that, and all of that for your glory. We're thankful for the opportunity to lift them up this morning, and uh, pray that your kingdom would be advanced through their ministry. Um, Lord, I wanna pray specifically about how we spend these next few minutes. I confess to you in front of this body, in front of those that are gathered with us, maybe for the first time today, that I'm feeling like I'm bringing some medicine that that maybe people may feel like they don't need. And Lord, I pray that you would liberate me from that feeling knowing that you are right on time, that you have proven over and over again that you bring us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. And I pray that this morning, if it's just equipping for people and it's equipping them for a time when their hope is tested. Lord, I pray that 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 would happen. And Lord, I pray for those that may, who are here this morning, who may be experiencing severe hopelessness, that they would be ministered to, to today in a way that would give you so much glory, that they would adore you and enjoy you in a very tangible way this morning. God, lastly, I pray that I'd be out of the way, exposing your word for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Turn to the book of Ephesians. We are in Ephesians chapter one and have been, at least when I'm preaching for the last couple of months, We will be, eventually, at some point this fall, we'll have a five or six sermon series in Isaiah. I didn't want us to have a straight diet of Isaiah. So we are, our main diet, at least when I'm preaching, is going to be Ephesians. And then we will have short windows, um, the first of which will be this fall into Isaiah. But for now, we're in Ephesians. I'm going to begin in verse 15, but I want to give you a little bit of a, uh, kind of a bird's-eye view of where we're sitting. In the book of Ephesians, the first chapter, so far up to this point, he has been, Paul, has been writing to the Ephesian church, and he's been bringing before them really more than uh, a letter so far. It's just been out loud worship. He's been, he's been doing what we would call benediction. He's just been praising God for his many spiritual blessings. And in fact, he used the word every spiritual blessings. And then he goes into a list of things that he considers to be apparently exhausted when he says every spiritual blessing. The father's choice, the son's earning redemption and forgiveness, and the spirit's seal. It's a wonderful first 13, 14 verses um, developing, hopefully, uh, in the life of our church. And if you haven't heard those, it will develop for you through listening to those sermons. A real appreciation for the blessings that we swim in as his people. But now we're moving from that, from spiritual blessings, over to prayer. Paul is praying for these people that he loves in the Ephesian church. So We're going to pick up in verse 18. I'm going to read all the way through verse 23, but we're spending the majority of our morning on verse 18. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's actually where I'm going to stop right there. So far in the letter, in the first chapter, Paul has been oriented vertically, enjoying spiritual blessings. And now he's moving horizontally in praying for those that he loves. And he's praying specifically for knowledge. And the word we considered a few weeks ago is not just an awareness, not just a, some sort of conceptual gathering of facts or some collection of facts, but he's praying for a word that in Greek is epinosis, which means almost experiencing God. He's praying that these people that he loves in the Ephesian church will experience God in a meaningful way. Now, before I continue with what he's, how he's praying, I want to ask you a question, just consider, just to think on this for a moment. How would you, if someone were to ask you, a workmate or a friend or a family member, how you experience God, what would you think? Where would your mind go? How would you answer that question in how you know and experience God? Some of of your minds might go to a little quiet place that you have in your house, a little prayer room, for example, a little place that has some candles and quiet setting and little Bose stereo system there that can play through Bluetooth, some soothing music, nothing wrong with that. You can experience God in that place. I'm not dismissing that, but that may be where your mind goes. It might go to a place of deep prayer and deep study or deep meditation. Your mind might go to a place where you are taught and where you hear preaching. It might be here. It might be... um, uh, a, a preacher that you listen to weekly, that the Lord really uses him or her, probably him, hopefully him, in your life to expose his word so that you know him and experience him. Maybe it's through fellowship, through fellowship as you spend time with other believers that you really experience God. Maybe it's in your circumstances as you're going through the week and you see God's fingerprints on details and events that unfold where you really experience God. However you would answer that question, I want to call your attention to how Paul prays specifically after he asks that they grow in the knowledge and the experience of God. It's not just a general prayer that they might find him in their meditation, that they might find them in their prayer time, that they might find them in their fellowship or in teaching and preaching. He gets very specific And he deals with three ways that he's praying that they will know and experience God. It's so clean, it makes me wonder if Paul didn't have a preaching series on this when he was there with the Ephesian church in the flesh. Really? Like a preaching series on knowing God. How to know and experience God. Because it's so linear and it's so tidy and it's so clean. The first of these three things is where we're going to spend our mornings in verse 18. The particulars, you can kind of tease them out if you're reading this in verse 18 and 19. Three things that you may know what is, that you may know what are, And that you may know what is. And here's what those three things are. First, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Secondly, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And third, that you may know the greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's how we're going to be spending our next three weeks with this week, this Sunday, on the hope. To which he's called you. I've asked you to consider how you might answer the question of how you would go about experiencing God. Now I want to ask you the question how you would define hope. If you had a family member or a friend or a child comes to you and says, Mom or Dad, how would you, can you help me understand what is hope? Someone that you work with is asking you that question maybe. How would you go about defining hope? It's not an easy thing to define. I went to dictionary.com. I went to uh, Merriam-Webster. Thankfully, that's not where we have to go this morning. But just for sake of contrast, let me share these definitions with you from dictionary.com. The definition of hope. The feeling that what is wanted can be had. Think about that for a minute. The feeling that what is wanted can be had. Here's the second one. A feeling that events will turn out for the best. Okay, that's dictionary.com. A feeling that what you want is in reach, or a feeling that a situation may turn out okay. That's a worldly definition of hope. Here's, Here's Merriam Webster the chance that something good will happen. That's hope. The chance. That something good will happen. These definitions sound pretty hopeless to me. I'm going to be really honest with you. Just, they, they sound pretty lame. and pretty. I mean, they're pretty much a downer. But as much as these definitions are a downer, let me, let me share with you the definition or the understanding of hope for the Greek 2,000 years ago. For the Greek person, Greek person X, in Ephesus, as they heard the word hope how they defined it. Because how they defined it is going to give you the starkest contrast between what Paul is praying for and how they thought about hope. Here's how the Greek defined hope 2,000 years ago. For them, hope consisted merely of a consoling dream of the imagination designed to forget the present troubles but leaving them with many uncertainties. A dream of the imagination designed to forget the present troubles, leaving them with many uncertainties. I would not call that hope. I would call that delusion. That was the Greek understanding of hope 2,000 years ago that we, frankly, wouldn't call even, come close to calling that even hope at all. Well, here's the good news, though. Whether old definition or new definition, whether it's dictionary.com, Merriam-Webster, or whether it's the Greek understanding of of, of this word hope, we together should and can hope for a more robust understanding of hope. We can hope together and we can know together that what Paul is praying for in the lives of those he loves is more substantial than I just hope this is going to work out. It's more substantial then there's a chance that some good will happen. Man, he's praying for it in their lives, and it's something that we can grab a hold of this morning that's so much more than what's being defined here. I want more than this. I need more than this. If I'm called to live for something or potentially die for something, I need something more than a dream that a positive outcome is possible. That sounds kind of like gambling to me, frankly. That there's a chance. I need something more than these events may just turn out for the best per chance. Don't you want something more than that? Man, the good news for us is that we have so much more in something we're going to call this morning Christian hope. We're going to distinguish worldly hope. Christian hope. And we're going to consider in these next few minutes what Christian hope we have, what Paul prayed for in the lives of the Ephesians, and what we have together in Christ. It's altogether different. There's no gambling involved. Three things. Before we get into those, let me just share with you. It's more than a feeling. It's more than a chance. And it's more than a dream. And if it makes Paul's list of three things that he's praying for in the life of the Ephesians of how to know God, then knowing what kind of hope we've been called to is going to be pretty important. So, the first of three things the hope that we've been called to, first of all, our Christian hope is connected to call, a significant call. Look at verse 18. He's praying that they may know what is the hope to which he has called you. One way to distinguish between callings is to identify who's doing the calling. Hopefully realize there's a vast difference between mom calling us for dinner and God calling a family to missions in foreign lands. Obviously, there's a difference between dinner and missions in foreign lands. But as different as those are, the bigger difference here is the difference between mom calling and God calling. Who's doing the calling has everything to do with the gravity of the call. Turn to Second Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4. I have four or five passages I'm going to have you turn to this morning, and this is the first of those four or five. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll begin in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose Heart. You could flip that around to say, We maintain hope. We don't grow hopeless. Rather, we hold on to hope. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse the practice to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. but we have this treasure in jars of clay. A few verses later, he says again in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. You want to know what this little chapter here, chapter 4, is about? It's about not losing heart. It's about not losing hope. It's about holding on to hope. And what's the center, what's the meat in that sandwich of we don't lose heart is right here in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now here's the beauty of Calling. The God who called atoms and molecules and galaxies into existence shone and spoke and called into our hearts, calling us from death to life. A great reason, first of all, before we even consider how Christian hope is different, we can consider it's different, first of all, because of who called us to it. The same God that said, let there be light, said, let there be hope. Let there be hope. A great reason not to lose heart and a great reason to have hope is because God called you to it. The same God that said, let there be light. Turn to John chapter 11. It's the second of about five passages I'm having you turn to this morning. John chapter 11 is one of uh, my dearest treasures, personally. We spent about three months, I think, as a church family working through John chapter 11 in what we called the He Stinketh series. It ended up becoming one of, one of the most life-altering worship fueling uh, journeys that I recall having been on in my Christian life. And there's a beautiful picture of calling here in this chapter. I'll just share a few excerpts and then we'll just climb in uh, verse by verse in verse 38. Some excerpts, beginning in verse 1. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. There's lots of Marys, so he's just distinguishing which Mary this was. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Okay, there's love in front of call. verse 6, so Jesus hears that Lazarus was ill, and he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He doesn't rush off to go save the day. He actually lets Lazarus die and become, in fact... Ripe before he shows up. Ripe and in a sealed tomb. So Jesus tells the disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, in verse 15, he says, I'm glad that I was not there, so you may believe, given what's about to unfold. In verse 20, he shows up there to Bethany, and Martha heard that Jesus was coming, and she went and met him, but, Mar- but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Mary does the same thing down in verse 32. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And now let's pick up the storyline in verse 38. You've got two grieving sisters. You've got a brother, dead and ripe in a stinking, sealed tomb. And in verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time, surely he stinketh. That's where that title of that sermon came from. There will be an odor. For he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. A beautiful picture of the Christian call from death to life. The reason I read that is because I want to show you in this illustration, in this story, as an illustration, the world's version of hope is as different from Christian hope as Mary and Martha's sadness and mourning. Jesus, if only you'd been here, he wouldn't have croaked. The world's version of hope is as different as Christian hope. From Christian hope as Mary and Martha's sadness and mourning stands in startling contrast to the breathless shock and wonder that they must have experienced seeing their dead pro- dead brother come forth and that shocking difference was the call the call made all the difference come forth Lazarus I read one guy that said it's a good thing he called him by name because if he had just said come forth, every grave would have emptied. That's how effective the call. Come forth, Lazarus. Come hope, Mary and Martha. Come hope, Lazarus. Come hope, disciples who are witnessing this so that you too may believe. I'm calling you to hope by name even though we haven't yet considered how Christian hope is different. I hope you can see and sense our hope is altogether different because, first of all, God called us to it. The same God that said, let there be light. Secondly, Christian hope is tethered, anchored, and moored. Those are just synonyms that I just want to hear. I like amplified versions of stuff. Tethered, anchored, and moored to immovable things. If Paul is praying that they'll know God through the hope to which they've been called, if it makes his list of three things, then it's worth asking and answering, what is it we've actually been called to? It's profound enough that God's called us to it. We've given that. And that makes it great in and of itself but is it just a feeling? Is it just a holy version of the dictionary.com definition? Is it somehow a sanctified version of what the world feels when they try and muster some hope? Now, I'm going to equip you with some terms that I'm going to use. Some of you may, this is like you know what this is, some of you may not. The difference between subjective and objective, I'm going to use these terms in these next few minutes. So I want you to sort of put on your thinking cap and just let me Kind of teach you in the difference between subjective and objective because we're going to use this in the next few minutes. When something is subjective, it's subject to your feelings, it's subject to your definition and your take on it. It's mostly, if not completely, unmeasurable and it's sort of ethereal and airy. Objective, on the other hand, is measurable. It involves facts that aren't subject to feelings, or moods, or circumstance. If subjective stuff is airy, objective stuff is static. Here's something, another way to kind of think about it. Subjective stuff might include music and art. The kind of music that Daniel likes to listen to is going to be very, it's vastly different than the kind of music that I'm going to listen to because music is subjective. Math, on the other hand, is not subjective. It's objective. There's a right answer, period. Some of us that like math enjoy that. Some of you more objective types. There's a difference between subjective and objective. Now that I've equipped you with that, bring those thoughts into where we're going in these next few minutes. The hope that we've been called to is like worldly hope in that it very much involves... Subjective thoughts and feelings. It's not just factual stuff. It very much involves subjective thoughts and feelings and beliefs and perceptions. And this subjective hope, though, also like the world's, is in some ways subject to your experience, subject to your personal feelings, and subject to your thoughts. It can't be measured, it can't be verified. And it's sort of ethereal and airy. But the Christian hope, taken together, is so much more than just subjective. The Christian hope includes with it objective hope. Objective hope is unbiased and concrete. It's not subject to individual interpretation. It's factual and it's it's not experiential. It's like math. Now that I've equipped you with that, I'm going to show you two examples. An example of of subjective and an example of objective. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to do some work here. It's not complicated. You just have to pay attention. Hebrews chapter 11. This is the example of subjective hope. And this one is a little more complicated. Because it's not a clean definition of hope. In fact, the passage here that we're going to look at is a definition of faith. But the word hope is used as part of the definition. And if you look in a dictionary or a thesaurus for a definition of a word, you're likely going to hear some other words that if you looked up those words, you would see the word that you were looking up in the first place. They're related. Okay? So we're going to see this here in this first passage. Hebrews chapter 11. familiar passage. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, there's some things that you can use as almost synonyms here. Things hoped for and things not seen. So you can, first of all, take in a little bit of definition of hope, a little bit, a little sense of subjective hope involves things that aren't seen. Secondly, it's going to involve some of these other words that are included in this definition of faith, like assurance and conviction. Those go with hope just like faith and hope, overlap. It involves things not seen. It involves assurance. It involves conviction. It is very much a feeling and is very much subjective, difficult to measure, and is subject to your experience. This is very subjective in tone, this passage. Now, turn to Hebrews chapter 6, just a few pages before. This is the objective side of Christian hope right here. I promise you there's a big payoff here if you hang in here with me. I promise you. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Hear math. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Hope here is personified in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hope here is not a subjective feeling, but a factual reality that is measurable and static. This hope right here is like math. Here's how it's like math. One Jesus entered into one high court of heaven. One Jesus, one high court of heaven through one curtain that was his torn flesh and accomplished something very factual, very much measurable for every sin, for every one of his sheep was paid for past, present, and future. He accomplished something in a high court of heaven that was and is real and very much objective. It's sure, in fact, he says, and it's steadfast and it makes a very nice anchor by the way. So, the Christian hope, what we've been called to, man, this faith thing, this assurance thing, this conviction of things that you can't even see, these very real subjective feelings are tethered to and anchored to and moored to sure, and steadfast, objective realities. Our feelings about life, our feelings about love, loss, difficulty, Tuesday, marriage, work, are anchored to the perfect and complete, finished, effective, supreme, life-giving, death-sparing, scandalously wonderful fact of a virgin birth. The fact of a sinless life, an unjust death, a victorious resurrection, and a very real heavenly ascension of a very real person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's sure, that's steadfast, that's objective hope. Man, it makes a nice anchor. The Christian's hope, the hope to which we've been called... Man, it's faith, it's assurance, it's conviction, it's very much feelings, but it is anchored to facts. Now, the third thing. Christian hope treats future promises like certainties. We haven't really focused on future stuff yet as we've talked about hope. We've mainly focused on looking at some factual things, some objective things that are subjective, uh, some objective things that subjective hope is connected to. But we need to spend a moment on future stuff. Christian hope, the hope that we walk in, the hope that we've been called to, treats future promises like certainties. If knowing the hope to which we've been called is a way to know and experience God, then it's got to mean our hope is connected to knowing His track record. Knowing His track record. Christian hope involves subjective and objective. We've dealt with that so far. So our subjective conviction about things not seen Our subjective faith and assurance connect again to, in this case, a very factual, objective performance record that's flawless. God's got a perfect performance record that's worth noting and worth knowing. He made some early and big promises to a man named Abram, an old guy with every reason in the world to not have hope. An old guy that's married to a barren wife, but his early and big promises made, in fact, came true. He made some promises about a land that he was going to call the promised land. In fact, his people that were promised to him, this offspring that were promised to him, did in fact inhabit the promised land. He made some promises to him about the number of his offspring, and his offspring did, in fact, become as numerous as sand and stars. And we sit here as some grains of sand in a sanctuary 3,500 years later, 4,000 years after these promises were made to Abram. As numerous as sand and stars. We're a product of those promises. I'm sitting right here, sandy, all sandy. Man, he makes some promises, and he makes good on them. He made some promises to Moses about deliverance and provision, and those promises were as sure as the Red Sea folding in on the Egyptian army and as sure as bread falling from the sky and water gushing from a rock. His promises made to prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and many others that judgment is coming but that he would preserve and not only preserve, restore a remnant came true. Our hope looks back and is anchored to a promise made to a young virgin. A promise made to a young virgin that she'll be with child by the Holy Spirit. Our hope is tethered to a promise made to the disciples that the temple would be destroyed but then raised again on the third day. Amen? Man, our hope is tethered to promises that he made to the disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit. And then seven weeks later, the Holy Spirit showed up sevenfold with great fanfare because he makes promises and he makes good on those promises. Turn to Romans chapter 4. It's the last passage I'm going to have you turn to today. Romans chapter 4. So some of these names I've mentioned, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Mary, didn't mention her by name, but alluded to the young virgin. The disciples, they joined Abram in hoping against hope. Romans chapter 4, verse 18 says, In hope he believed against hope. That's like saying he hoped when it was absolutely hopeless. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. Because God said so. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, old joker. Since he's about 100 years old, or when he considered, he looks over at his beautiful wife. I don't know how she's so beautiful, but she's old too, and she's barren. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. These people hoped in future stuff, stuff they couldn't see based on past fulfillments. Man, Abram especially causes me to marvel. Because Abram didn't have the catalog of fulfilled promises that we have. When he's raising the knife to take his son's life, the only promise that had been fulfilled for him by that point is that he had a son. But man, we have a catalog. Example after example after example of promises made and promises kept. And the hope that we have in a future promise of His return. The hope that we have of our future redemption. Promises that He's made to us like, I will never leave you or forsake you. Promises that no one will ever snatch us out of His hand. Promises of a new heavens and a new earth complete with new bodies. And a world with no sun because of the radiant presence of God. Promises of no more pain, no more tears, no more death. Man, those promises we treat as certainties because of his past performance. Man, he's made a lot of promises, but he makes good on every last one of them. Knowing the hope to which we've been called means knowing the God who makes good promises and then makes good on his promises. Now, a few closing thoughts for you. I want to consider just for a moment what this should mean for us. But first I want to consider what it must have meant for the Ephesians. It must have meant the suffering that they experienced under Roman rule in an utterly pagan context where the seventh wonder of the world loomed mid-city. Knowing the hope to which they had been called would surely help them endure and persevere and continue. Hope would have given them certainty as they gripped past fulfillments and promises yet to be fulfilled. Knowing their hope would surely keep them from being blown about by every wind and doctrine. It would keep them from being choked out by the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches, maybe. Knowing the hope to which they were called would foster steady worship in a dark, lost context. Now, I prayed this at the beginning of the morning. I've struggled with this. I shared this with the worship team and the guys that meet together and pray together beforehand that I was struggling, feeling like, man, I don't really know of anybody that's just absolutely hopeless right now. I don't know of anybody that's just absolutely in the ditch. For some reason, we're just in a seem to be, and I might be wearing rose-colored glasses. It seems like everybody's doing okay. But I know everybody's not. I'm not always doing okay. There are times where I experience utter hopelessness. So I know there are times where you might as well. So this travels. We need this. Part of me was thinking as I was going through the weekend, sort of going over this and putting the finishing touches on this, is I'm not sure we really need this. But then I'm reminded this morning, yes, we do. Yes, we do. For knowing the hope that we've been called to, it should galvanize us. Knowing the hope that we've been called to, first of all, knowing that We've not been called to dinner by mom. We've been called by the one who said, let there be light, and instantaneously, the farthest star is in place. Instantaneously, the Betelgeuse sun is in place. Instantaneously, these things came to be because he called. Just like Lazarus is spilling out of that tomb. All stinky. Man, we've been called by the one who said, let there be light. Knowing the hope to which we've been called should steady us by reminding us what objective realities and facts we're to grip while we walk in conviction about things we can't see and certainty in unlikely situations. We have some great anchors. We don't find hope in a doctor's report, people. I'm not throwing out the doctor's report. I listen to them one. If I have need one, I'm listening. But I'm not going to find my hope there. We don't find hope in a good report card, young people. You don't find hope in acceptance into that college that you really, really wanted to get into. You can celebrate those things, but don't find hope there. We don't find hope in a good day, week, or month of marriage. That's not where we find hope. We don't find our hope in a good job. We don't find our hope in a candidate. Anybody need to be reminded of that? We don't find our hope in a candidate. We don't find our hope in a great place to live. Our hope is moored, tethered, and anchored to a hope that stepped into a throne room behind the veil, having accomplished what we never could, having solved our greatest problem and provided for our greatest need. It's math, like math, that's sure. That's the right answer. Knowing the hope that we've been called to should remind us too of many promises made and the ongoing fulfillment of every single one of those promises. We hope in future blessings based on a perfect track record from the ultimate promise maker and ultimate promise keeper. Let me pray. God, I pray first for those that um, really, 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 really needed to hear hear this this morning. I I pray for those that are experiencing utter hopelessness right now. Lord, I pray this was equipping and... Well, I pray, first of all, it was encouraging and helpful to, for those people. That it's just like medicine. Like salve. And God, I pray for others of us that are just like, man, I'm fine. I pray that this is equipping. Lord, I pray it's equipping knowing that there's not a matter of if a time of hopelessness comes, or if a time when our hope is tested, but when, that we are equipped in times of peace. I pray for the hurting this morning, and I pray for the others, for just some good old-fashioned equipment. I'm thankful for your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.